Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Uh, hey, welcome to East Lake. My name is Brent. I'm the teaching pastor here. Thanks for those of you watching online on the live stream or catching this on replay. Thanks for those of you in attendance uh, in person this morning. We are on week three, part three of a series of calling uh, Wandering in Darkness. It's supposed to be a series on suffering. So far, it's been a series on Job because, um, you know, it's been three weeks. Have you ever started a project, like a cleaning project, and realized it was going to take you a lot longer to do than than uh, that's basically how this uh, thing has worked as well. Uh, I got talking about Job and then kept uncovering new things. And I was like, I got to talk about that. And then I got to talk about that. And so it's worked into like a, a three-part mini-series on Job that's a part of a four-part series looking at four different people in the Bible. So uh, if that's as clear as mud, then uh, I, don't, I don't think anybody actually even cares about what series we're on usually. <laughs> I think that's more of a me thing trying to structure myself. But we're glad that you're here. Thanks for being a part of this. You are coming in. If this is your first time coming into like part three of a conversation that's already had a couple of parts to it. So um, if there's anything that doesn't make sense, there's an app you can download. It's got some talk stuff on there that you can catch up with. But um, essentially, we said uh, any, any pastor or preacher worth his salt talking about uh, his or her salt, talking about uh, suffering and pain in life and trying to make sense of it, you really like, you, when you become a pastor, you have to sign a little waiver that says, I promise I'll always talk about Job uh, when it comes to suffering. And, uh, and, and <laughs> just kidding, there's nothing that you need to sign. You just show up and people give you a church. It's pretty crazy. So um, uh, in, uh, in, in the book of Job, we said that we, we were ta- we've been talking about Job like the epic of Job. And, and it really does read like that, right? Uh, an epic is kind of like this, uh, this story uh, that has like, uh, like high arching moral values and, and things, but like, did it actually happen? I, I think it's kind of more of a, an author wanted to talk through and process through a better way to think of suffering. And so he created this epic uh, of Job and epic of, you know, the Odyssey and, and the Iliad and all that kind of stuff in that genre of things. And one of the reasons I think about that is because of the way that the framing story is set up. There's basically three parts to the book of Job. If you want to, if you're into like breaking things down uh, in terms of organizing the structure of the book of Job, you've got the framing story in chapters one and two. A framing story is, is um, you read these a lot in sort of any sort of, uh, once upon a time, there was a king who lived in a kingdom who had a prince, you know, a princess or something like that. And you're like, all right, I'm wrapping my mind about where I'm at and what to expect of this sort of thing. Uh, and then uh, in the, from chapters one and two, then it goes into chapter three and three and beyond is a bunch of dialogues. It's a bunch of um, Job having conversations about pain and suffering with his friends who are supposed to be like uh, counselors and, and people who are by his side and they kind of turn and weave and sometimes they're for him and sometimes they're against them. And then it comes down to even his wife who, who basically at one point just says, dude, you, you, uh, you, I don't know what you've done, but like just curse God and die, which is like a really hard thing to hear from somebody who's like, you know, for better or worse, richer or poor in sickness and in health. Um, and now curse God and die. That's a tough tough spot to be in. So uh, that's where that leads to. And then at the very end, but Job continues to cling 
to I haven't done anything wrong and I don't understand and I'm looking for answers in this way. Uh, until in chapter 38, there's an encounter with God through a storm, like a whirlwind thing. God's voice comes down and he has this big, and we, we said this in week one, he comes out. We, in fact, in week one, we started backwards. We started at the end of the story. We're moving backwards from it. Um, he comes out of the, the, his voice shows up and says, Job, who darkens counsel with words without knowledge? Like, who is this who thinks they have answers and, and demands? I demand reasons for my existence. He's like, you, don't, you can't demand anything. Um, and, and then he goes into like this really long uh, monologue, not even dialogue, monologue. Have I not been good throughout all creation? Have I, have I not, were, were not the stars joyous when I put them in the sky? What, what, how did the sea respond when I, t- when I gave it borders and said this far and no, no further? Have you ever befriended the Leviathan and the, all of the behemoth and all these kind of different animals and this big sort of all of creation? I, I've worked in goodness through all of creation. Uh, why would I not uh, continue to do that now? And you were, you were right to cling to the goodness, to my goodness. Uh, and, and that's been, that's kind of how the whole kind of story ends with like this little, un. Uh, uneasiness at the very end of him just having the statement and then what do we do with that? And I think that's what the author's trying to kind of put us in that position. What do you do with that? What do you do with with the piece? So, um, but what we said uh, right at the very beginning, part of the framing story in Job uh, chapter one, verse six, is that one day the angels came. So after this whole once upon a time there lived a king who lived, it's, it's basically once upon a time there was a man named Job who had a bunch of stuff. He was very wealthy. Everybody liked him. He, uh, had all these kinds, this number of sheep, this number of cattle, this number of sons and daughters and, and all of those things. And then it says, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. Like this weird family gathering in heaven, uh, Thanksgiving dinner, and Satan shows up, the accuser, uh, to be with them, which immediately sets off alarm bells. What is he doing here? Um, and it sets off this like awkwardness involved. And it's presented as if it, he has a, a, a some sort of a family right to be there or there, um, uh, an invitation, but also when, while he's there, it's special notice that it's awkward that he's there. And you've, you've attended Thanksgiving dinners. They're family, they can come, but like things aren't great, right? So there's just awkwardness. That's what this is like. Um, so there's some sort of an alienation from this. And then God asks Satan a question in this framing story that says, uh, from where have you come from or where have you been and what have you been up to? And Satan's response is, oh, you know, roaming the earth here to there, doing my thing, right? People to see, a lot of people to meet, things to do. Busy guy, busy guy, restless, thinking, uh, and we said this in week one, he's, he has, he's experiencing restlessness. I'm always thinking that uh, the grass is greener on the other side, that there's something over there that's not satisfying needs that are here. And so I've got to kind of be always continually searching. And so in this, in this moment, what, what does separation from God look like? It looks like a, a sense of alienation and it looks like restlessness in terms of existence. Um, and I, I think that that kind of speaks a little bit to human nature in terms of our distancing from God too. But like, you know, you can kind of do what you want with that. But, but then God's response to these two realities for Satan's life is, have you ever heard of my, my friend Job? Have you ever heard of this guy named Job? Man, he's like, he's fantastic. He's done all of these good things. It's like the mom at the dinner table going, did you hear about your brother's new job and his new girlfriend? I know, mom, his life's going great, which means, you know, obviously mine sucks and that's what you're trying to point out to it. That's what it kind of feels like a little bit, right? Um, so have you considered my, my friend Job? And then, and then Satan's response there was, um, does Job serve God for nothing? Does he fear you for nothing? Or is it not that he, he loves you, quote unquote loves you, uh, because of all the good things that you do from him? You should not be surprised uh, that if you pick up, if you're willing to pick up lunch, there are a lot of people who want to do lunch with you. You know what I mean? 
That's just the reality of life. If you become known as somebody who always buys, then like everybody's like, hey, what are you doing for lunch today? You know, and, and uh, as soon as you stop buying lunch, you, you, you'll see at your workplace uh, a, lot, a lot fewer invitations come in. That's Job's, or that's Satan's kind of accusation about Job. The, cynici- the cynical side of him only sees that which he struggles with. And that, that's true of cynicism in general. We said that the cynical tend to see everything through the projection of their own inability to integrate around goodness. That what God is trying to do is point out the goodness and the genuineness of Job. Uh, and, he, and, and Satan refuses to see that and refuses not to see the negative and refuses not to see that as not even a potential a, 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 a thing of reality, right? Job's response after this, so then uh, the, the, a deal is made. Um, uh, God says, okay, if you think that that's true, then go ahead and do whatever you want to Job, but don't touch him physically. Anything but him, if you want to take away that, we'll, we'll, and it's like a weird game. And we, we, we're, we're sitting here as readers of this going, why would God even entertain a game like this? I don't want to be a part of a game like this. Um, so so what, what is happening here with this sort of thing? But Satan leaves, he goes out of God's presence. Um, and uh, the, the next part of the story is that Job's life is turned up, upside down. Marauders come in and, and rob him and take away his cattle and kill his kids and, and his homes are destroyed and everything about him. And his response is so unique. And it's such a, a part at the end of chapter one, it feels fairy tale-ish because what he says is naked I came into the world, naked do I leave it. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Who am I? It's like, oh my goodness. Like this admirable steadfastness is so characteristic of Job. And if the story ended here, that would almost be enough for us. We, we admire steadfastness. When people retire from our, from our workplace or our, our place of employment and, and at the, the little farewell banquet, they're like, we 25 years. I was here 25 years. You're like, man, that is a long, how did you put up with Carl for 25 years? I need to know how that happened, right? Or you go to a, a wedding uh, anniversary thing and, and they're like, 20, we've been married for 25 years. Like, what is your secret? How do you do it? How did you stay with him for so long, right? Like, uh, it's so admirable. We can kind of highlight that. And, and, if, and if the story ended here, here, even if you're not religious and the Bible, just just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it has extra authority. It's just a book amongst any books. You would still read the, the, the story of Job and be like, there you go. There's somebody who is doing good at life. They get dealt a bad deck of cards and yet they remain steadfast and it's it's admirable that they did that. I want a piece of that for me too. I know circumstances kind of go up and down. I know that um, uh, I I want my kids to always see their dad as somebody who no matter what life threw at them, like he he stuck it out and, and, and did the best that he could, right? That's, that for us is not necessarily like religious, doesn't have a corner on that. That's, that's an admirable virtue in, in general. So if it ended there, that would be enough. But we know that the story doesn't end there. It goes on uh, even more. On another day, verse uh, one of chapter two now. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? L- listen, almost exact same verbiage from chapter one as chapter two. It's the only difference here is on another day, as in this happened again, something similar happened again. Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, oh, you know, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. His response is the exact same. Then the Lord also said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And this is where I left you last week. And I said, everything at this point has been similar up to this point. And now we get a little bit of a departure. And it's the small nuances and differences that I think speak so 
greatly to what we're about to experience. So I left you with a cliffhanger to make you come back this week, and here you are. Here we go. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all that he has for his own life, but now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, very well, then he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So again, a difference here is uh, you can't touch Job. And then in the second round, you can touch everything about Job, but you can't kill him. So like the circle of protection has gotten smaller. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. And then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. And immediately following that verse is when we begin to go into the dialogues. The friends show up. They're like, man, we've seen, we've heard all this kind of stuff, crazy stuff about your kids, crazy stuff about your stuff. And now this, like, oh my goodness. And begin, I don't know what you've done, man, but you need to confess it because God is punishing you for some sort of unconfessed sin. And he's like, I haven't done anything. And like, sure you haven't. Okay, let's talk about this even further. What, 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 maybe, what maybe do you not know that you did, that you did? You know, let's, let's go that route. All of the dialogues begin to take place. And we get almost 30 chapters of dialogue dialogues, which begin to get a little bit tedious, I'll be honest, and a little bit seemingly repetitive. But that's where it ends, and then they encounter at the very end. And that's all part of the second retail. That's part of the second version of the story. So version one of the story is chapter one. Version two is like 40-something chapters. We get a lot of it. But let's focus in on these first five verses of the second chapter to fill our time this morning. This time, we're going to go kind of break it down a little bit verse by verse and go through it because I think it's uh, important to uh, notice some things here. This time when Satan comes among the sons of God, he did this the exact same time, some sort of another family gathering. We don't know the distance in between. It just says then on another day, right? And again, I don't think it actually happened. I think it's a story. So just at another point, Satan comes from devastating Job as God knows that Satan knows that God knows. There's a lot more things out on the table here. And I know that's very confusing, but you've been in a situation where there have been, your significant other has asked you a question, they know full well that you know that they know that you know, right? And they go, what, what is this Amazon box that's just showed up at the house? And, and you know that they have the same exact account and they look at the numbers and they, they can log in and see it. And they did probably because the way that they're asking means that they know and there are speakers and they're going in your house and, and you're like, and then it just sits in a box and, and then they go, when are these speakers getting put up, right? And, and, and did this happen recently in my house? It's tough to say. It's tough. Who, who knows? But could be. Anyways, it's, it's different when someone is asking you something that they know they already know the answer to. So the fact that this is showing up again in this, this unique way is, uh, is not just by accident. Like what we said in, 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 uh, in last week was that uh, Satan goes and begins to undermine everything that God is working for. God is working for reconciliation for the world unto himself. And Satan goes and does the exact opposite. We said it'd be like a, a politician whose son goes and works for the competing campaign. Like that kind, of a, uh, that kind of a betrayal is taking place. And so when he's asking this question, there's emotion involved in this. From where have you been coming from? You know, you know where I've been coming from. You know, we both know. I know that you know. At first, maybe I could write it off as maybe he doesn't know, but you, I know that you know now. So it's harder I, I tried to picture it in terms of uh, just to kind of paint, paint the, the emotion or the depth of the emotion. Um, imagine, you know, when a marriage is trying to survive an affair, 
when, when, when the knowledge of the affair is presented, that's one thing. Something happened in the past, I need to let you know about it, right? And you're like, man, you feel betrayed and you feel lost and you feel questions and all this kind of stuff. But imagine that affair being ongoing and the pain involved in watching that person go, leave, and then when they come home, when they have the audacity to come home and you go, where did you just come from? And that person going, you know where I came from. Would you want me to say it out loud? I mean, imagine that sort of like, ugh, that betrayal, that, that depth of hurt and pain. I think that's what's kind of trying to be portrayed in this scenario. So why then would God even ask Satan this question? Why pose the question in the first place if you know genuinely well where I'm coming from? I mean, I think it's perhaps to give this person, to give somebody else an opportunity to own up to it, to put it out there in the, in the universe, to, to correct themselves. You've seen Job. You've, I think he's going to say to, to Satan, you, you, you tried your best against Job and do all these things, and yet he remained admirably steadfast, that he was genuinely good. You questioned his goodness because you're cynical and you refuse to integrate your own life. You refuse to integrate what you have to be, here's what I am and here's what I want and, and to, have that, to, to have that proper integration. I wanted you to see it in first person, what that looks like and feels like. And perhaps you then, I think this is a reconciliation, we said this from the beginning. I think what Job starts off with the framing stories is a reconciliation project between God and Satan. He's trying to reconcile him unto him, that they are not bitter sworn enemies from the dawn of time, that Satan is a creation who is, ultimately stuck out his middle finger against God or pushed back against God as, as this is the ultimate, you know, I don't need you. I don't want you. I, don't, I, I want separation from you. And he's constantly trying to bring us back, bring everything, all of creation back into him. And so what we see in Job is this kind of thing beginning to take place. And this question giving him agency and an opportunity to take a small step forward. All right, I used to think that genuine goodness was not possible, but now I've seen it in Job. I don't know if it's still available for me. But I'm, I, I, he's like, can you, did you see it there? Can you, can you at least acknowledge that it exists and that there's potential available for you? But Satan doesn't respond like that because we know that that's how the story would end and like there would be this start of integration back into things and we know that this is just chapter two of a chapter of a book that is much, much longer. So it doesn't end like that, right? He goes into this deal. Skin for skin, let's up the ante essentially, Satan replied. A man will give his all that he has for his own life. In other words, there are things that we will do to maintain survival that under normal ethical and moral guidelines, we, I would never, I would never, I would never. Yeah, but what if your life depended on it, would you? And we can, you know, he's like, you can say that you wouldn't, but if you were, if you were, uh, the option was die or do this, you'd be surprised what you'd, the human ability is willing to do. A, a, a man will give uh, all that he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones and he will surely curse you to your face. What Satan wants to do this time is hit him so hard he has no other option. Ah, the pre, he, he justifies it in himself of saying, it's not the goodness of Job that was so significant. It was my inability to see um, how much more I could have done and should have done against him. Like you held me back from fully reaching out and having, having the potential to, you know, uh, push him away from you and, and be a, a part of the division and have him experience alienation and restlessness like myself. Um, and, and so he's like, let's, let's go further. Let's go further. The Lord said to Satan very well, then he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. And this is a really uncomfortable verse, especially if you're like not familiar with like 
you know, scripture, this is maybe the first time that you're hearing it, or it's been a long time, or, or this is just kind of a, like, what is happening here? Why would God even concede? Why would he play this game? Why is there this cosmic game of, let's see how miserable we can make Job's life? Um, this doesn't sound fair to Job. It doesn't sound like, like, what's the point of any of this? And we have a couple of options of interpreting this verse. And one option is simply kind of like a parent who's been pestered by his or her kids for too long, and you just say, fine, do what you want, just don't kill anybody. <laughs> and that is, a, that is a real thing. Not sure how long it's been since you've had kids, but at some point you just go, I don't care what you do. Just don't kill anybody. <laughs> don't hurt anybody. I don't want to go to the hospital, but like everything else is fair game. And uh, we wouldn't categorize that as like a caring parent, would we? Like that's not the that's not like the prize thing. You don't you don't want to you don't want your kids to grow up and be like the reason I know that my parents have always loved me is because they let me do whatever I want. Um, you you never said that about your parents. You you laugh about it because you turned out okay, but like that's not a sign that they were caring. They were just trying to survive, right? Um, the other option for this is not simply somebody who's been pestered so long that he finally gives in, uh, but. When God says that Satan incited him to move against Job, God is not only pointing out to Satan that he, rather than Satan, was in full control of the evil that befell Job, but he's also pushing Satan to acknowledge that God acted as he did for Satan's sake. Look back at that verse that shows up uh, at at the very beginning here. Um, He says, uh, oh, where's where's my verse at? I lost it. Oh, here it is. He still maintains his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. He, he, he takes ownership of this. He doesn't even blame Satan for this. Remember when I let you do that thing to Job? He doesn't say that. He's saying, I did that to Job. You incited me to do it, but I did it. He's taking ownership of this, going, um, like, this is not an exception. I did this on, on purpose, which would then hopefully put Satan in a position to be like, why? Why would God allow me to do what? Why would God allow this to happen? Why would he do this on my behalf? And God would say, I would, I would hope that you would see it and know that this is how far I'm willing to go to reconcile you unto myself. I'm willing to subject this person to this kind of a treatment just to prove to you that there is genuine goodness in the world and that you, that that, 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 that kind of goodness is available to you. And that's the, re- that's the really hard part for cynicism to deal with and cynical people to deal with. A cynical person would prefer supposing that God acts for some impersonal good, such as the maintenance of justice in the universe, to the alternative of being forced in the acknowledgement that I myself am loved. Listen, when I'm cynical, I don't believe in goodness. But even if I did have to believe that God is good and just, I, am, I can concede in the area of overall, there, there's a sense of justice in the world. That in the end, everybody gets what they're deserving of, whether good or bad. But to then internalize it to the point where that's true for me, that God loves me. It's easier to say, for God so loved the world, than to believe with your heart to say, God so loved me, that he gave his son to die for me. Right? Easier to be like, I believe that God is love. Yes, but he loves you. Well, I mean, come on. That's, that's the hard part. That's the hard integration. That's the next step with this. And so option two is, why does God play this game? He's so desperate to show Satan, I'm for you still, in spite of your continued and, and unequivocal rejection of me. I will go to great lengths to reconcile you unto myself. Which again, as us reading this, we go, so what? Job's just like this innocent third-party victim? Sucks to be Job, I guess, huh? Like, 
What kind of a God would do this? That does, I, I get that he's caring for Satan, I guess, but he's not seemingly caring for Job. What do we do with that? And whether or not God's justified in his actions here is something I want to wait to kind of come to that decision on together as we synthesize uh, this at the very end of the series. We'll have some sort of a why I think God works the way that he works in this way. For us today, I just want to simply understand uh, some of the things that I think are taking place in this story about our understanding of pain and suffering. God delivers Job into Satan's hand with his sole provision. He can't take his life. Why would he play this game? What is he hoping to achieve, by the way, that can't be achieved the first time around? What is he hoping in the second time around that couldn't be achieved in the first time around? So Satan, verse seven, went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Boils from the uh, top of his head to the soles of his feet. And we we said in uh, in week one that there are two levels of pain and suffering involved here. One is external, all the things that he owns that are external to himself. And one is internal. And the problem with the internal one was not just that he, he... had a restlessness of, uh, of like he, he goes, I have nightmares in the day and nightmares at night. And during the day, I can't wait to sleep. And at night, I can't sleep. So I can't wait for daytime. He's like this terrible existence. I'm living in limbo my entire life. I hurt from top to bottom. I have these, I have these, these boils that are repulsive. They're, not only do they hurt dramatically and I'm scraping myself with clay pottery, but also nobody wants to be around me. What was interesting it would be like, it would be this, when things were happening to me externally, people felt bad for me. Oh, I'm so sorry you lost your kids. I'm so sorry you lost your stuff. They had pity on me. They raised a GoFundMe for me. But now that it's affecting me myself, they don't want to be around me. And now they're coming up with all kinds of stories about why this took place for me. This is a, this is a next level humiliation piece, right? So what's the point of, uh, of this whole thing? After Satan leaves the gathering of God's sons to attack Job a second time, he disappears entirely from the story. He makes no uh, other appearance at the end of this. There's no sign of internal integration, no sign of reducing the alienation from God or a lack of restlessness or a movement away from restlessness. This narrative shifts entirely into a story about Job. And one take could be that Job goes from being somebody who has admirable steadfastness to sort of a divine sense of Greatness. He becomes the ultimate archetype of something like this. He becomes something that, like, I don't know that you could get there through normal behavior. Like, there's something beyond this. There's a quote uh, that I, I read about a book that's been inspiring for this series by a woman named Eleanor Stumpen. It says, the things Job suffers in consequence of the first episode between God and Satan moved Job from being an outstandingly moral and pious, prosperous herdsman to being kind of a cultural hero. He becomes like a hero in his own right. And somebody we admire, again, if, even if we weren't religious. The suffering consequent in the second episode moves him from there to a stature that manifests the greatness of the human spirit. That in, in one sense, um, his, his stature and, and who he was like, just becomes that much greater. What is the good that can come out of this? Yes, you could be this good, but what if you were this good, right? I mean, like, that's, that's a step up. And, and what, what is happening with this? What is, what is the greatness of the second one that's, that's greater than the first one? We said in the first attack, this was in week one of the series, separates us, uh, was an attempt to separate the love of prosperity from the love of goodness in Job. Uh, the love of, pros- what he loves is being prosperous and you fill that need for him. That's why he loves you. Take away that and he's not gonna love goodness. And we said that Job 
separated those two things, was able to figure that out, was able to hang on to goodness. I don't know why this is happening, but I refuse to um, bend to the power of, of, of like the power of God in spite of the goodness of God. He kept clinging to the goodness of God. And the second attack separates Job two things that might be you know, thought to be inextricably connected. This idea of the love of God as like this like office of the deity versus the love of the goodness that is truly the essence of God. Do you love God or do you love the goodness of God? And his friends are saying, how can you, how can you, not, how can you not respond in this way? They're, they're shocked that Job refuses to take as good anything done by God. This is happening to you. It doesn't have to be good. He's God. He gets to do whatever he wants. Job is shocked by them and their willingness to abandon any objective standard of goodness in the interest of being on the side of the ruler of the universe. What they're saying essentially is this, how can you not accept God and his ability to do whatever he wants? He's God, he gets to do whatever he wants. He goes, yes, but how can you accept that if he's truly good, as he says that he is, he could be capable of doing something like this? And in one sense, that's a kind of a modern day God. We live with this like respect and God gets to do whatever he wants. Yes, but God is love. And Job was not wrong to cling to the goodness of God saying, I, I don't know what this is, but this isn't from you or this isn't you or this isn't or I just that there will be something good here. I'm clinging to that goodness. And God, when he comes down, vindicates Job. He has words that says, I understand. I, I, just so you know, I have operated in goodness from the very beginning. He walks him through the creation process, like we said. And then he has harsh words for Job's friends. How dare you like lead him into this? Like you guys have not been good counselors. You guys have not been good friends, steering him away from my goodness. Trying to point out the power of God in this way, but I'm, I'm ultimately good. And, and Job takes a stand with goodness rather than with the office of God as ruler of the universe. And without losing his personal commitment to the person of God, Job refuses to accept what God ju does just because it's God who does it. He refuses to accept what God does just because it's God who does it. He demands and clings to goodness. Job's rebuke to the comforters implies that Job thinks God himself would approve of the attitude Job adopts, siding with goodness against power, even in God's case, and the narrative implies that God takes Job to be honoring God by taking this sort of stand. And then what happens after Job is left scraping the boils off of his hands is that we begin to see him dive or the author dive into deep dive into a story about those dialogues. And it kind of feels like it's a movie or have you ever seen like a, a, a clip of like the globe and then uh, like it kind of zooms in on something and it zooms in further and it zooms in further. And it's like this microscopic thing and it's, and it's like a picture within, within the picture and it's trying to illustrate that here, here's what this looks like. But, but then it, it, you do this, there's something called uh, fractals where they, they, look at, uh, they look at pieces that, that reflect the bigger picture and you zoom down and it's the exact same thing but just in smaller form. And that smaller thing is made up the bigger thing and then you zoom down further and it just keeps getting the same exact thing. And it's the deeper you go into this, we see it's just, a, it's just a reflective of what's seen from the bigger picture of things. In this whole picture within which the story of Job is a detail, right? In the framing story, Job's just a pawn. He's just a piece. God deals with Satan in a way which aims at Satan's good and which is designed to keep the distance between God and Satan as small as Satan will let it be. This is the bigger story, even though it takes up only two chapters, which is a lot less real estate than the rest of the thing. But in this 
In this part of the story, Satan is the primary beneficiary of God's love. And then it's like the camera zooms in. And in this picture, Job's the beneficiary of everything God loves. And then in the monologues of God against, against Job's thoughts, the, all of creation is the primary beneficiary of God's great goodness. All in all, God's goodness is the same in all places. And yet what we're given is another story tucked inside of another story, another story about God always operating within this. Stories within stories that keep on going, patterns self-perpetuating into eternity. And by explicitly giving us that story as an enlarged detail of a much larger story, it helps us understand the fractal nature of God's care for all creation and the many stories that we are not given. So how does this, what does that mean for us? It means that we can look at the goodness of what God has done in our life and understand, I don't know what this means for other things, but I know what it is for me. And therefore I can see the, I can, I can believe that there's goodness in that somehow. Or for us who do, I don't see the goodness, I see the goodness over there and that must be somehow good for me. That God has this pattern of always doing this sort of thing. And another interesting, I think, point. Why is Job not told that this entire thing was about a reconciliation project with Satan? Job is never given information, even in the encounter piece at the end of the book. Hey, just so you know, this whole thing was this game that we were playing. I know it sucks to be a pawn, but it's this big giant game. And, uh, and I was trying to kind of show Satan how good you were, because you're the man. And so thanks for being a part of this. He's never told any of that. As far as Job knows or is presented in the book, he's never given any of that information. We are, as the external audience reading this thing, we get to see the reasons. Job is crying out for reasons. Explain to me why this is true. I'm clinging to your goodness. What I want from you are reasons why this happened. Job is never given reasons for why it happened. We, as the external authors, external audience, get to read this and get the answers. We get Job's experience, which is, you know, who speaks to me about knowledge, which they do not understand. Haven't I not uh, operated with goodness? I'm asking you to trust me in this way. But we are also given a picture of why it took place. Something, we're, we're better off than Job is in this way. We're given more reasons why it happened. What did Job need? Not what did he think he needed. He thought he needed reasons, but that's not what he was given. What he was given was a face-to-face -face encounter. Look into my eyes. The longest piece of dialogue that God ever has with any human being on the planet is Job in the entire scripture. That's, this is the longest one. Moses has less time, Abraham less time. This is, this is like the ultimate experience. What he's needed there is this face-to-face -face encounter. That's what he needed, not what he thought he needed. Because sometimes what you think you need and what you actually need are two different things. Consider a child in a hospital fighting aggressive leukemia who's suffering from the pains of a bone marrow transplant who just wants to know from mom why she doesn't help him and stop the suffering when she so clearly could just get me out of here. Your mom, you can sign me out of here. We can leave. She might try to explain the benefits of the transplant, but that might not be the right move because sometimes what we, not, what we want is not necessarily what we need because in that moment, what the kid wants is an explanation. Why am I here? Why are you doing this to me? Why are you signing the paperwork that makes me stay here? And for her to be like, well, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna take cells from here. We're gonna you know, disassemble them over here. We're gonna inject them in your body. It's gonna take you to an inch of life. And then we're gonna slowly try and bring you back. And they're like, inch of life? Yeah, you're almost gonna die. In fact, there's a good chance medically you'll be dead. But that's when we can start raising you back. 
Imagine the fear that that induces in the kid. That might not be the right thing to tell the child in the moment. What do you tell the child in the moment? Something else. You make up a story. We're in, we're, it's medicine. It's all helpful. It's, it's, it's not medicine. It's poison. But they don't need to know that. What do you say as a mom? It's probably different. It's based on what the kid needs in that moment. And what they might need is not an explanation at all. It might just be a hug that says, trust me, this is for your good. And no, it doesn't feel like that. And I know it feels like I could pull you out of here. But that would honestly be the worst thing for you. And I'm going to need you to trust me that it's not. Now, now, maybe the kid's at an age where it makes sense that they can begin to understand. And then you do begin to explain the process. But it's different. We just know that it's different. So in that way, in terms of how do we make sense of pain and suffering, how does, how does it, why does it, when we are going through pain and suffering, a lot of times feel like we're just wandering in darkness in life. We're just kind of like feeling our way around. We're lost, whether we're in the middle of that right now, or it's been a long season of that, or we've been there before, or we have somebody who we love who is currently going through that. And it does feel like life is just wandering. And we begin to cry out in our prayers. We're like, make sense of this for me. Connect some dots. I demand answers. You're a God who's supposed to be a God about love and, and, uh, and goodness. And this doesn't feel like goodness. And I don't see how it could be any sort of goodness. The, the author of Job goes, let me, let me talk about this. Let me paint this picture for you. That we might not always get what we want. But in the end, God is always good. And then he gives us what we need, not always what we want. And that should be inspiring for us as we experience the pain and suffering that sometimes comes with the circumstances of existence in this world. Now, for three weeks, we've been just exploring the narrative of a sufferer who is a righteous, unwilling victim of the devastation of others and the random forces of nature, right? Over and over again, we were reminded by God himself and Job himself, I've done nothing to deserve this. I'm an innocent sufferer based on the, the uh, <clears throat> uh, malicious nature of Satan in this, but also the, perhaps the uh, unscripted nature forces of nature or whatever. I'm suffering as a result of this. And that, that is a big question for, that we would have, like a genuinely good, if you're a human who's lived long enough life, you go, why do bad things happen to good people or innocent people? That This is kind of a beginner's course on that piece. Now, next week, we're going to turn to the story of Samson, which is the narrative of a person who suffers greatly, but as somebody who kind of brought it on themselves, right? Who sort of deserved it. And that's a different form of pain and suffering. And we've all been there too. So what I'm telling you is next week, if you, 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 know, if you feel like I, I'm going through some pain and suffering, I'm going to tell you why you deserve it. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. But uh, you might have somebody who is like that. And you're like, you need to come and hear what he has to say because... You deserve it. And let's make sense of it together. So, um, but that's a little different than what we're going through today. But my, my prayer is that uh, may we be the type of people who, uh, as we find ourselves wandering in darkness, because that's a reality uh, of us, may we cling to the goodness of God. May we, may we, may we sometimes, uh, we're welcome to bring things in prayers and demands of connect the dots for me, make sense of this for me. Sometimes we get it, sometimes we don't. May we rest in the fact that when we don't, it might not be what we need most in that moment, that perhaps we just need a face-to-face encounter going, I've been good this whole time. Why would I not continue to be good now? So that's our prayer. Let's pray. Father, uh, I pray that you would help us. Uh, that, that might not be the most fulfilling sort of answer. That might be like the, 
yeah, but I want good things. I want good circumstances. I want uh, the, the, the doctor to have good news for me on Monday. I, I want things to resolve. I want this marriage to be repaired. I want uh, my kids to respect me again. I, I want all kinds of different things to come together. And, and that might happen and it might not. And may we uh, take a page from Job and be not just admirably steadfast in that, uh, and saying, you know, you get to do what you want, you're, you're God, but, but also to cling to the goodness of it, to not resolve that you're good, you do whatever you want just because you're God. But I know that you're good. I know at the core of your essence of being, you are good, that you are love. And so I help me to see how that goodness is true in this circumstance, because it might be really hard for me to navigate that. And I probably will not get there by myself but perhaps your spirit inside of me, perhaps a divine intervention, perhaps there's something about that kind of an understanding that could come for someone like me that cannot be explainable through normal circumstances. But um, I pray that, that you would help us to navigate through pain and suffering in this way or help this to be a lens in which we are willing to look at this. Give us the wisdom to know what that looks like in our life that cares you something about it. In your name, amen. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri-Cities in your favorite app store.